and welcome to episode 45 of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Thursday, July 23rd, 2020. A big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. How's it going, Courtney? Pretty good. How are you? Okay. You know, (laughs) we're still podcasting in place. Looks like the kids are going to be doing distance learning. So that was kind of a a blip in the system. But, uh, you know, otherwise. I'm glad, I'm glad to finally have the news because I figured when the public schools made that decision that it wouldn't, it didn't necessarily drive our schools, but we were heavily headed in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. So no surprise. No, exactly. But I think our schools both seem to have pretty good plans for going forward. And, and so I'm comfortable with it. That'll be good. Yeah. We'll see how the children do. I know. I'm more just really sad that our freshmen won't have that initial freshman yeah. entry experience. And my older son had this amazing analogy for it. He said being a freshman is like being a mouse in a new kitchen. And you walk <laughs> in and there's like all of these big things and big equipment and big people. And you're just sort of bombarded with new smells and faces. And it's all just crazy new. And you kind of have to explore the kitchen and find your way into little pockets and cupboards to find your people and you know it's really easy to get lost and I just thought that was a really sweet analogy for the freshman year of high school yep we'll see how it all works out for them I'm sure they will be fine anyway so our podcast continues as normal Uh, we will have on the needles on the easel on the table on the nightstand and our bingo update so I have you know one or two things to talk about, so let's get started with On the Needles. First thing I want to talk about is the Bay Area Fiber Fair, which is an online four-month-long, it's kind of like our bingo, there's all sorts of um, challenges for you to meet. Then you can post your results on Instagram with the hashtag BAFF challenge, and if you order from Yarn Shops, you can get stickers and you can post stickers online and they're going to do weekly prize drawings and there's like a bajillion challenges are you gonna Uh, provide a link to that for people we will put that in the show notes yeah Um, that's great posting on some of my um things i've done for the challenges on instagram so you can go through the hashtag and you know circle around that way and they have a website at uh, I don't know what the website name is right now, but Search Bay Area Fiber Fair. Yeah, so it's different things, doing projects, you know, from a Bay Area designer or dyer, yarn purchased from a Bay Area yarn store, different techniques, so like knitting lace, knitting a sweater, knitting, you know, all sorts of things that way. But there's also spinning and dyeing and mending and weaving and all sorts of a range of different options. And it goes through October, so you've got plenty of time to play along and it's fun it's you know some things I would be doing anyway but just stretching your skills a little bit in some ways so I've been enjoying that but the big news for my actual knitting is I finished my sweater (gasps) in 32 hours oh my gosh 15 days of you know calendar time anyway you count it I think that's pretty pretty good for a for a whole sweater I think it's unbelievably great (laughs) (laughs) It was fun, and I'm super, super excited by how it turned out. So this is the soundtrack pullover by Marie Green, who is Olive Knits. And my yarn is the Neighborhood Fiber Company Studio DK. And this is the it's a yoke sweater pullover um, with stripes of your contrast color, whatever that might be. So I used a gray that's called Broadway Market is the colorway. And my bright blue contrast color is Ward Circle. I think I talked about this last week where they only had three skeins or they had four skeins, but one of them was significantly darker than the other. And I said, send it on. 
don't take the time to rediet. I just want to knit. I'll figure it out. And I think I did a good job. So I ended up all to so the top part of the sweater. I alternated one of the light skeins and the dark skein and then kind of faded it once I got past the blue. So you could definitely tell there were stripes, but it's all the same color. So it looked intentional. I got lots of nice compliments when I posted it in the Facebook group for the, for the knit along. And my friend who was a knitter saw me wearing it and, and she thought it looked good. And so, yeah. And, and I got nice compliments on my Instagram post as well. So I feel that it doesn't look like a hot mess. <laughs> it looks like it was on purpose. And so I'm really pleased with it. Um, and I love the colors. It's just, it's that's, great. That's fantastic. Yeah. And the top part was fun. It looks good. And that's been fun seeing what everyone else has done. And it occurred to me that I do, and this is my wheelhouse. I like dark colors. I'm not a pastel person, but all I have are really you know, dark, intensely colored sweaters. And I'm kind of thinking that like a white one with a, a pale design might be nice. So I'm going to have to think about that for my next, for my next project. Getting some variety in my in my colors. I'm looking at the picture on the Instagram right now and it it is fabulous how you did the thank you that darker I love it. Thanks. Yeah it and it's super like, intentional. Well it was. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. But I felt as I was knitting it when I looked at it and I tried it on, I didn't there have been some sweaters that I've knit where I've made design choices and I'll put it on and be like, mm, okay, yeah, I could wear this. And then I don't really wear it that much. Yeah. So I was just like, oh yeah, I would totally wear this. I'm not, it doesn't yeah. feel like it looks weird at all. So, so I am pleased. It's definitely a more form fitting than it was, the sweater was designed to be. Um, she actually designed it as a unisex sweater. So it's meant to be worn a lot larger, but I often, for me, find if I do that, it just looks bulky and oversized and no, this looks like it, it fits really well. I'm pleased. I was very excited about that. And then I did a quick little knit. Um, I made an Empower People cowl, which is designed by Kesapanka. And I used some leftover Mouse House Fiber Company store, S-T-O-R-R. -R. That's the type of, or the name of her yarn. And uh, the colorway for that is Moxie, which is a vibrant purple. I love the color. Thanks. Yeah, I used, it, I used it in a tricolor cowl for something else. I had won the yarn, and so I had all this leftover purple. So the thing with this cowl, there's a, the, I did the knit version. There's also a crochet and a sewn version. You're supposed to make it and then wear it, and it's to raise awareness for making sure people are registered to vote and that they actually vote in all possible elections and equality and voting rights and all those good things. So and it's supposed to be purple. So that's why I picked the purple. I had to go through my stash and dig out purple. And it's this one is a super simple, it's garter stitch. So it took me, I don't know, a couple hours to knit. So that was fun. And there'll be a link to my project that goes to Ravelry, which hasn't figured out its issues yet. So fair warning, if you can't do Ravelry, don't click on that link. But you can search in general for, I think, for Empower People Cowl. And there's a whole website that explains all their stuff. And I think they're doing different not events, but posting prompts each week for other things you can do to help people get out there and vote. So that was two things done. And then mostly I've been working on my Criterion Cal, which is also by Kesapinka. So apparently she's my new favorite designer. And this is in the Lady Dye Yarns minis. I have one that's, there's three of them. One is gray and then a bright pink and a light pink. And I am loving this cowl. It is so fun. Each section is kind of a different textury pattern. So you only knit eight or 12 rows and then you move on to the next thing and you're usually changing colors and doing a different pattern. And I'm able to do it while watching TV and it's super potato chippy because you want to, you know, finish up and get to the next section and change colors. And so I really been enjoying that and, you know, it's nothing complicated, but just fun and kind of keeps your brain enough engaged that you want to keep doing it. And I worked a little bit on my Bautista shawl from, Celia McAdam Cahill. That's the one in the Yak Lux yarn. So it's pretty nice to work with. And it's this blue green color. That was the official colorway for my retreat that I did not get to go on, but we got our yarn. And that's a lace pattern. And it's actual knitting on both sides. So a lot of times with lace, you'll just purl all the way back. And this one, you're doing stuff on both sides. So you really have to pay attention. So that's when I kind of have a moment to focus on my knitting. I'll do that. So that one's 
going much more slowly, but I've gotten a few repeats of the pattern done so I can, I can see the design that's being created, which helps with continuing because you can tell what it's supposed to look like. It's easier to catch if you screw up, or theoretically it is. <laughs> I think I'm doing okay. <laughs> so yes, I'm getting a, a good, good bit of fun knitting. And then I went and played around in my stash and dug stuff out for upcoming projects and trying to figure out, but I'm still kind of going with, oh, this is what I feel like doing right now, especially this week. Good. Just knitting what I want to knit and not being beholden to anything other than that. So that is what is on my needles. And you had a yarn report, I understand. I have, yes, I am working on my Lemon Latitude project and I am researching all things Japan. And I thought I would talk a little bit about Japanese yarn. I thought this was so interesting because the the yarn tradition in Japan, it is not a native craft to the island because they don't really have, or they don't have a history of using animal fiber. Most of their yarn was originally plant fiber, bamboo, hemp, I think rice, I didn't jot it down. And then the bark stuff like mulberry and a lot of other Japanese barks that I don't know how to pronounce properly. Anyhow, I thought that that was pretty interesting. It is still a very seasonal craft. Like most Japanese knitters, there are some for sure diehards who knit all year long. But for the most part, it's considered a winter craft. And so a lot of their knitting happens when it's colder. They also have their own needle size system. Like there's, there's UK, American, and then Japan has their own needle system, which was, I didn't know that. So I, I just searched for yarn from Japan and I found like six or seven different companies that I thought were really interesting. There's Hamanaka, which is in Kyoto, and it was founded in 1956. They do this other line called Rich Moore, which I don't know if you've seen that one. And they have a line called Bonnie, and it has the most vibrant fluorescence I've ever seen. They're so fun. And I could see doing really crazy pom-poms with them for the holidays. Just awesome fluorescence. There's another company called Ito, which is the Japanese word for yarn or thread. And their stuff is mostly mohair and silk. There's a, a shop, I think. I think it's a shop and a yarn manufacturer in Kyoto called Avril. Their website features this crazy textural yarn. Monica, it's like um it's like a strand and then it has these little tails coming off of it. It's called fua fua. It looks like cattails. I don't even know how you would begin to knit that, <laughs> but it looks so fun. Again, I could see using it more as a accessory to like a package or something like that, but I'm sure people knit incredible things out of it. A lot of people are going to be familiar with habu, which is a fiber yarn, mostly fiber yarn. Habu is the name of a snake that's unique to Okinawa, to the Okinawa region. I thought it was interesting that it was mostly fibrous yarns. And then there's Noro, which even I've seen, me, the, the yarn novice. And they have a magazine, an online magazine that I've paged through and I thought was really well done. And they have a really long history in Japan too. And then there's Daruma, which was founded in Bishu in 1901. They have a, a line called Genmu that was really cool. I don't, I think I liked the packaging as well as the yarn colors that they had, but they had a huge variety. And I did see a lot of the Noro and the Daruma ones on U.S. yarn sites when I searched them. I don't know if any of those are new to you, but I thought I would toss them out. Yeah, I think I've heard of Habu and Noro, and I don't think I've heard of any of the other ones, so that's... Well, definitely check out the first one in Kyoto with the Bonnie fluorescent ones. Oh, okay. That one, those really, I thought that was great. 
And then you have to see the, <laughs> the Fua Fua tail from Avril. Yeah, I looked that up. That looks fun. I think, well, actually, I was trying to search in Ravelry while you were talking and see if there's any projects that people have done. With that Fua Fua? Yeah. I, I think it would make like, um, just a, I can't think of a fabric equivalent, you know, like, um, like a really shaggy sweater or something like that. I don't know. I thought it was incredible. I will have to play around with that, but thank you. Yeah, it's, it's always fun to do that. I hope the yarn people appreciate my, my little field trip. Well, I do anyway, so. Good. What's on the easel? Oh, boy. It's good stuff around here. I'm still working on my 100-day project. I have nine days left. So I did get a little bit behind, but I have been kind of chipping away behind the scenes. I'm not posting yet, but I think when I'm done with the whole 100, I'll do like a giant flip through on Instagram. Everything is story driven for me. So there's like little stories behind each thing. I didn't paint a paper crane because I thought a paper crane would be cool. You know, I'm reading about Japan and that's why. So those kinds of things. So the 100-day project is going along. I am working away on my gouache zine, all about gouache paint from my perspective, which is definitely not exhaustive, but I have a lot to say about gouache. (laughs) And it's so fun because the gouache that I really love, the Holbein, Holbein, I think it's Holbein, is from Japan. So that's kind of fun too, that I get to delve into that a little bit further. And then I'm painting stuff about Japan. I also had a brainstorm to do, you know how there's all of these like writing prompt decks or books to get out of your writer's block. I I had several of them when I was in grad school. When I was sort of fumbling with my art practice here, I realized some of them worked for for creative stuff, but it wasn't what I was looking for. So I decided I'm going to make a creativity deck or a creativity book. And there are plenty of books in the world about creative prompts and creative practice and that kind of thing, but this is the one that I need right now. So I'm writing and like making a deck of cards so that you could shuffle through it and get a prompt or not really a prompt, but just a different way to look at something, you know, like turn it upside down or I I don't know. I'm, I'm still sort of working through my, I have like 150 ideas about different ways to approach a creative roadblock who knows where this is going to go, but it's something that I have a need for. And so maybe other people will find it useful too. I'm really excited about it. In order to build this creative deck, I made all of these paint chips because I wanted to have a unified color palette and I'm terrible. Look, (laughs) like hundreds of paint chips. I have a vision for how I want things to be. And so I am really delving into a new approach to this. And I think that that is helping fuel the content behind the creativity too. I'm obsessed. I was working on it last night and, you know, postponed dinner for a half hour because I just wanted to finish this one thing. And it makes me a better person overall, aside from dinner being a half hour late. So that's, that's right now. And I'm super fired up about it, but Last week, when I was in my little creative rut, one of the prompts on our bingo sheet was to finish something. I, I have had these vintage quilt tops that my friend Kelly asked me to, actually, they were just the squares that one of her grandmothers had put together and then never finished the quilt. And they found them when she passed away like eight years ago. I know. And I've had them for a really long time. And they're super 1960s, 70s fabric, lots of calico, tiny patterns, crazy colors. 
I didn't have quite enough to do a, a whole quilt. So I had to like make maybe six or seven more squares that kind of fit into this overall composition. And then I put the quilt top together. So it's, you know, it's 95% her grandmother's work. And then I found some quilting cotton for in between and I backed it with fabric that I had here, like a really thick cotton. It feels like, um, like a dishcloth material, but really soft and broken in. And I made a quilt <laughs> and just hand stitched around the whole, the, put the seam binding tape, you know, so it looks like it really did come from the 60s or 70s because I used all vintage materials where I had gaps. And so that is going in the mail to her today. And it should be there by the time we publish the podcast episode, because I'm pretty sure she listens within a day or two of it coming out. So I still have another one to do for her. I actually have two more, but one of them is too far. It's out of my realm of, um, of experience. It's like super old silks from the insides of ties and it is beautiful but I think I'm nervous about it because the silk is just really fragile so I think I'm just gonna send that back to them and they can I don't know how they're they want to archive it but I have another one to do that needed it it's bigger than a crib quilt but smaller than a twin size and like one whole panel needed all new fabric and it was really hard to deal with because I want to show you a picture of it. So most of the quilt is already built and it has one border on one side and then it needed like a whole other strip of quilted squares and this is the I think it's a log cabin one and they all have like a red center in the in the original quilt they all have a red center and then they're sort of built around the red square. I mean, obviously I don't have any matching fabric to what's in the quilt, but I did find this red calico that's pretty similar. And then I went through my fabric, did vintage, lots of vintage actually, and this one. And so now I get to add this these squares like along the border of the original quilt. That one is, is pretty fragile. So this one side will be new, but so quirky and, you know, usable and, and done. Is the red fabric the same for all of them? I mean, I know yours, the one you did. In, in hers, yeah. It's this little red background with white chickens. And mine is a red background with white. It looks like Edelweiss. So it's really close from a distance you, I mean, I can tell, but overall, when you look at it, I think it'll be pretty unified. Yeah. And um, then all of the other ones are different fabrics on, is each square different other than the red yeah. center? That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. It's, I'll send a photo or I'll show a photo of them when I, when I have it all built. Well, now she'll know it's coming. I'm just so proud of myself for finishing one of these yeah and now I'm eager to get the other one to her um, and then she and her sister can fight over them and then so all of the sewing got me thinking about all of the sewing that I always want to do and so I pulled out a bunch of the sewing patterns that I have and was pairing it up with the fabric that I have it's hard to I mean you can't really shop for fabric right now although I did get into the fabric store to get some elastic for masks but I have a lot of fabric here and so I did order a couple new clothing patterns from hotpatterns.com they're paper patterns and so they're going to come in the mail as opposed to doing the pdf pattern which meant going to fedex or something and having it printed and since I feel like we, we should be sheltering pretty much all the time now I'm being really careful about that so the new patterns are coming and I'm really excited because there's a great, almost a pajama top jacket. You know, you could make it out of a really fun fabric and then pipe the edges. I think I would wear that all the time, even right now. So, so I'm excited to do some sewing besides the quilts, but the quilts got me there. 
got me back to the machine. So cool. Cause I know you were kind of not ambivalent about your sewing, but at the beginning of the year, you were feeling like you weren't doing it as much. And so you weren't as excited about it. It felt so it's good to see you back into that. Thank you. I, I find that I do a lot of sewing. Like I've said before, it's a lot of utility stuff. You know, somebody will ask me, Oh, can you shorten this for me? Or can you fix this? And then when I have it out, I always think, Oh, I, I just want to sew my own stuff. And so now I'm stuck here. So I'm sewing my own stuff and mending like clothes that were either too long or altering things. It's a good time to do that kind yep. of craft. Yeah. So that's what's happening here in the studio. Nice. Yeah. All right. On the table, I'm kind of where, well, kind of where I was before, still cooking out of Vegetable Kingdom. So we'll hear about that next time. My boys are busy cooking away. Big kid made, he wanted to make steak again. So (laughs) we went with that. And he tried out the Easy Pan Steaks recipe from Aisha Curry, which is more than a recipe. Um, so you start cooking it on the top of the sto- on the stove, and then you stick it in the oven to finish. And that actually worked really well. So we were kind of excited about that. And she has you throw garlic cloves and rosemary and whatnot in there as well. Other than you didn't really do anything with it. So I'm not sure exactly what that added. So we'll have to think about that. Um, but the actual steak turned out quite well. And then he also did camembert pasta from Jamie Oliver, which we have done before, which is delicious Yum. whole container of camembert cut off the top add in garlic and rosemary again i think something like that some sort of herby business and then bake it and then you add it to your hot pasta and it gets all melty and it's amazing um and since we have two kinds of pasta we have to do two full things of camembert so cheesy oh my gosh yeah so that went super super easy very tasty highly recommend Boy 2 made grilled cheese and tomato soup, which are super simple, but that's, it's one of my favorite dinners, but it's great. He did the grilled cheese, found a recipe in sheet pan suppers. So you make a whole bunch of them at once and cook them in the oven instead of actually grilling them. If you're making it for dinner for everyone is I think the way to go. Um, You heat the pan up in the oven while the oven's heating the sheet pan and then throw butter on it. So as soon as it hits the hot pan, it's already, it's not just baking, it's already kind of grilling as well. And then you flip it over. Um, And she has you put another sheet pan to weight it down to help with the grilling process, I guess. But since we had two separate pans, one gluten-free, one gluten-full, I was at a sheet pan. So I was like, whatever, it'll be fine. And they were delicious. It worked really well. And then the tomato soup was from How to Cook Everything by Mark Bittman, which I am getting more and more into, I think just because, I don't know, I'm, I'm in a very, what I want to make simple kind of thing. So, um, and then I can just go there because they're probably going to have a recipe for it. So it was very chunky and more intensely tomato. Rustic. I was, yeah, which yeah. was fine. I think we needed more, but I don't think we had enough broth in there. It was really, really intense. You know, when I think of tomato soup, I think of like a pureed tomato soup. So this was definitely a different experience, but it was delicious. I have made his version of tomato soup and I do put the immersion blender in there and get some of the chunks out. Like leave it a little bit. I just like it a little bit smoother. So, but it was good. Yeah, no, it was, it was definitely a good, good experiment. So I have to keep that in mind for the future. And then one thing I did cook, I did a French onion frittata. And this was an idea that I got years ago from, I don't remember who, but it was a TV cooking show. And she did it with an omelet where you caramelize the onions forever and ever. And then you make the omelet with Gruyere cheese and the caramelized onions, which is basically French onion soup, except with eggs instead of soup. And so I did this as a frittata. Everybody enjoyed it. A little bit easier doing the frittata than the omelet. But as a flavor combination, it's really nice and mm. not complicated. The onions just, you know, they take a while, but you don't really have to do anything to them. Stir them every once in a while. But, so I was pleased with that. And then we have a toffee bar update. So Courtney talked about her heirloom recipe last time, 
the toffee bars that she'd been searching and searching and searching to find the recipe because they, they couldn't find, I guess you guys didn't have the books and you couldn't find the right recipe and eventually your sister found it. So you were happy. And as you were talking, I was thinking, I have a Betty Crocker cookie book upstairs. <laughs> I don't have like a full everything cookbook. I have just cookies from Betty Crocker. That was the one my mom had in the 70s that I grew up with. And they re-released it in, it must be the mid 90s, late 90s, so that all of us could have it. And they did with like the vintage pictures and everything. So as you're talking about it, I'm like, I bet I have this recipe. And after we recorded, I went upstairs, got out the book, searched. Oh, there's toffee bars. Yep. One egg yolk. <laughs> that this yeah. is it. And said it to her. And it was. So I was like, well, this does sound delicious. I'm going to try it out. So I did. And they were. What you haven't heard, though, is that I made them again. Um, <laughs> did you let them bake a little bit longer? I did. So I did a couple of different things. So the recipe calls for spreading the dough out on a sheet pan in like a 13 by 10 space where you can cook it in but then uh, they're like super thin true okay but i was testing it like so when I, yes. so the first time i did it for my family with gluten-free flour which i don't think made a difference in the taste i did them in an eight by eight pan so they're pretty thick and they the base turned out fairly soft you make the base and then you add the chocolate chips and do you usually use nuts on it as well or no i don't use nuts and i just chuck the chocolate chips into the mix like we uh -huh. don't do the chocolate on top we just mix it in <laughs> so the official recipe is you bake the base and then yeah 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 so oh, i'm telling i'm telling the listeners <laughs> why there are differences and what i did and why there are differences in what i did and you when you take it out when it's hot throw the chocolate chips on let them get melty spread it around add chopped nuts to the top so i think that's like the toffee idea so that was what I did the first time. Actually, the first, when I first did it, I didn't even spread. I just threw all the nuts and the chocolate on there and just let them sit. And so that it was more chunky. So then the second time, I had a friend who did me a big favor. And as a thank you, I was like, oh, I'm going to make these for her because they're super easy. Uh -huh. Easiest thing in the world. And uh -huh. you pretty much. In one bowl. Yeah. And you pretty much have all that stuff all the time anyway. So that was easy. So I made it with regular flour and did the spread out on the sheet pan method. So they were definitely thinner. And then I put the chocolate chips on and actually spread them and then added the nuts. So it was a whole different visual, but also tasty. And she pre appreciated them very much. So that was fun. Problem I'm having, and I'm not sure, I think for some reason I, brought, I bought dark brown sugar. So they're turning out even darker looking. Mm -hmm. So telling when they are golden brown has been a little bit tricky. Um, because those, when I did the thin ones, I took it out a little early because they looked really brown and I didn't want them to burn. So they were still a little soft. So I think I need to just let them do one where they just let them go the full cooking time. But they were good. And then I came in the kitchen, I had kind of cut them and put them on the cooling racks. And I came into the kitchen to find my children, both of them. And I was like, ah, you, actually both of you, they're not for you. You also, they're not gluten-free. And he's like, nah, whatever. <laughs> I'll be fine. And Your they friends. did say they liked the thicker ones better. I will need to experiment with those a little bit more, but definitely a hit in our house. And that is it for me. I'm so glad. They've been a repeat request around here as well. They're good. And then I was going through the book because I've a few of my family classic recipes are from there because that was what we work with. So I was just seeing what else was in there. And some of them are just weird. <laughs> and some of them have a whole section on cooking with breakfast cereals. So they're like oh my goodness. the Captain Crunch, sec, you know, bar and tricks and, you know, all sorts of things. So it's and very, the, very interesting. The jello salads? Well, no, because this is just cookies. Oh, oh, this oh. This is okay. an entire cookbook, just cookies. So I do not. I remember to. ours having a vast section of jello salads. Yes. Which no, I never that. liked. I am actually quite fond of a jello salad, I have to say. Well, I do like that pink stuff one, which we talked about last year. Yeah. Oh my gosh, a long time ago. I think, yeah. yeah. Okay, on the table here. Well, the table went camping. So I thought I was going to have several days of fending for myself, which really means. I make a batch of rice and then throw some vegetables and like a hard cooked egg or a little bit of 
salmon on top for several days on repeat. One of my kids ended up staying here, which meant that I ordered him a small pizza one day and I made orange chicken from Trader Joe's for him one day where I saw, if anybody listened to last week's episode, I was complaining about how terrible I am at falafels. And then when I was at Trader Joe's, I saw not one, but two different falafel mixes. Well, one mix and one frozen version. So I was really kicking myself. It's gluten-free, so we have used that. Oh, excellent. I, I just... And they I were fine. Just, I imagine made from scratch is definitely better, though. Um, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that, given my... <laughs> as long as you use the right kind of chickpeas. Right. As long as you don't want falafel pancakes. So I did so many different rice bowl mix-ups for myself. And I did find a little recipe, not recipe, but that if I toast quinoa in a skillet and get it kind of crunchy, that that's a really nice topping for, or a texture addition for the rice bowl. Um, and then when they when the guys came back from camping, I had a request for spaghetti carbonara and more toffee bars. So I used the spaghetti carbonara technique from the New York Times where you put the the egg yolk and the parmesan and seasonings in a bowl that's been warmed with hot water and then add the hot spaghetti to it and kind of stir it up in it cooks a little bit, I guess. And that is such a crowd pleaser around here. I don't particularly love it, but the guys do. So that's a really easy dinner. And then I made the requested um, toffee bars, but they declared the eight by eight too small. So I doubled the batch, which is a lot of butter. I almost did it wrong. I almost put in half the butter because it just didn't feel right to put two cups of butter into anything. It's a lot of butter. It's obscene. That's why I asked you the first time. I was like, do you make the full batch? Because there's a lot of butter in here. Yeah. Like, how much does this make? I do cut it into like little fudge size squares, which helps with the portioning, sort of. And I don't, I don't do the layer of chocolate on top. Like I said, I just mix in the chocolate chips and bake it off until it's just browning around the edges and then I let it sit on the counter and it is like a dense it's like sort of a cross between fudge and shortbread the texture of it it's kind of I don't know how to describe it they're excellent yeah they are a caloric bomb though but today I'm making a plum compote I found some plums at the market. I bought a lot of them because remember back when we could go places? (laughs) (laughs) Vaguely. Vaguely. There is a, a really sweet cafe down at the Anthropology in Palo Alto. It's called Terrain Cafe. And they serve bread that's baked in a terracotta pot like a flower pot and they serve the bread with gorgeous whipped butter with a sprinkle of Mm. um, Malden sea salt. And then the last time I was there, they served this little container of plum compote with the bread. Mm. And I, it's been two years since I went there. I've been meaning to make that, to try to make that plum compote. It had a spice and white wine base to it. And so the plums are macerating. And then I'm going to, I'm not doing a big batch because we're not going anywhere. And it doesn't, I don't think it lasts that long. I think it's like compotes are like two weeks in the fridge. It's not like a, I don't know how to preserve it for longer than that. So well, and you're still kind of experimenting with it, right? So you want to, yeah. I want to see what it's like, but I'm really curious to see if it even, you know, sometimes my memory of something isn't what it was originally anyway. So we'll see how 
comes out, I'm, I'm excited. The plums are beautiful. I kind of want to paint a couple of them before I commit to this ordeal, but can't yeah, be worth that, the sourdough. The sourdough. I'm still, you know, I haven't really touched it since I gave some to a friend. I haven't fed it or anything. And I checked on it the other day and it's happy as a clam in the back of my fridge. I mean, it is, it's still got its bubbles. It smells great. So I just feel like I'm going to let you sit there until I'm good and ready to pay you some attention. Fair enough. Yeah. Sounds like a plan. That's my table. All right. On the nightstand. Apparently I've been reading the past two weeks because I have about eight books to talk about. (laughs) Yes, I know. So my jaw dropped for those of you who can't see our zoom call, which is everyone, but Monica. (laughs) It's a little bit crazy. So I finished Tehran. I was satisfied with the ending. Still not my favorite book in the world, but I could see many beautiful things about it and I would still recommend it because it might really be the book for someone that just wasn't me. That was the one that takes place in Iran and 40 years of history. I can't math anymore. Anyway, there were cats and people. So after that, I needed something quick and fast and light. And Party of Two from Jasmine Guillory had come into my library queue. So I was like, yes, that is what I am reading. I don't care how many books I have sitting in front of it. I am reading this now. So she is a local romance writer. She's amazing. So awesome. So this is the story of Olivia, who has been working in Manhattan as an attorney. Uh, She was a partner in a law firm, but she has decided to quit and move to LA to start a firm with her best friend. So as she's waiting for her house to be ready, she's staying in a hotel for a week. She's having dinner at the bar and she meets a great guy. He's super cute, super nice, seems interesting. They have a great conversation and then nothing happens. She's like, huh, okay whatever, you know, I've got my job, I'm starting this new company, I can't really be involved with guys. She thinks he looks kind of familiar, but it's LA, so maybe he's been in commercials or something, and she doesn't want to ask because it's weird. So she gets back up to her hotel room, turns on the news, realizes he's the new US Senator from California. (laughs) It's like, oh, that's why he looks familiar. So now she's just thinking, okay, whatever, now I've got a great story, moves on with her life. He, meanwhile, is thinking, oh, why didn't I ask for her number? She's the most amazing woman. He's really bummed. He goes back to the bar the next night, tries to find her, but she's already checked out. So he's sad. But he's giving a lunch, a speech at a luncheon a few weeks later. She's in the audience. They reconnect. Shenanigans ensue. It goes on from there. It all works out. You know, ups and downs. It all works out. Thank God for shenanigans. Ah, yeah, it was great. The only problem with this book is that, and this is true of her other books, she likes to talk, the author likes to talk about food a lot. So they spend a lot of time in restaurants. And this one, especially, they are obsessed with dessert. So as I'm reading this book, not only can I not go to restaurants, but it's like, she keeps talking about cakes, and she's analyzing the different kinds of cakes and pies. And oh, it was a little difficult. Because it sounded so good. This is a good problem to have in a book. It is. Yeah. So that was fun. And it was interesting, though, because someone picked one of Jasmine Guillory's books as a book that wasn't for them on the What Do I Read Next podcast, where they get book recommendations. They tell the host three books they love, one that wasn't for them, and what they're currently reading. And someone picked one of her books as what wasn't for them. And she said the problem was the hero had no faults, like, or he has you know, sort of faults, but they're not really like one of the guys, his fault was he cared too much about his mom and sister. Like he tried to do too much for them. Listening to that, I was like, that's weird, whatever, that makes no sense. And as I was reading this book, I was like, oh yeah, it's kind of true, but I'm okay with that. Like their, their problem is that he's a senator, right? He's famous, he's gonna be on TV. They're gonna be an interracial couple. She had some problems growing up. So there's gonna be all this media scrutiny, which, she might not want and she has her own career and how would you balance that and he has presidential aspirations and what is that going to mean for her and how does he deal with that and they have personality differences so so it's not exactly a problem but it is a problem but it's kind of a a real life sort of problem so i really like i really like that about her books but if you need more conflict in your romances then yes that might not be for you but it was beautiful i blew through it in a morning i was like this is just i just I'm going to bury myself in this book. And it was great. My next book 
this is gonna sound sort of weird, murder mystery. I feel like it's in a similar vein. I think my latest theory, and probably someone has already thought of this before, but I think romances and mysteries are kind of the same in that you know what's gonna happen, right? There is a, things, ha things happen in a certain way in both of these books, like romance, they meet, they have adventures, they get married. They have similar formulas is what. Yes. Yeah. Which is I very So in a mystery, I mean, the mystery is kind of the dark side of a formula. You know, you find a body, the detectives have adventures, they discover who the murderer is. I'm not even say that like there's justice done because that doesn't always happen, but you know that you will know who the murderer is or else it's some other kind of weird book. So it's also very comforting <laughs> in a way, at least I find it to be so. So that was what I went with. It had all my sweetness and light. I needed a little bit of dark. So Two Janes by Louisa Luna. This is her second book in this series. I read the first one a few episodes ago. This one is, it's a female detective, Alex Vega. She's very good at her job, emotionally distant. This one, there are two young, uh, the bodies of two young girls are found on two separate occasions, but there's some similarities between them. So they think they might be connected. And one of them has a piece of paper in her hand with Alex's name on it. So the police call her in to, as a consultant, basically, and ask her to investigate it because it for various reasons. And she says, I want Max from Pennsylvania that I worked with in the first book to come out and help me. And he's like, yes, I'll be there. <laughs> and so, yeah, it goes on from there. Not exactly shenanigans, but you know, it's a little more serious than that. I really like this. She has a couple of really good twists in there that I was not expecting. The relationship between the two of them is good. It's not as much of a relationship book as the Robert Galbraith ones. Um, it's really, it is more about the mystery. And I think Alex is a really interesting character. She's definitely has emotional issues and she's very reserved, but she also connects, like she can connect with witnesses and suspects and be who they expect her to be to get information out of them. Really, like she can read someone really quickly and change her personality, which I think is kind of interesting the way she is with the suspects versus how she is with everybody else. Both of these books I liked a lot. And that this one is called Two Janes by Louisa Luna. And then, <laughs> then I decided to finish up reading New Moon by Stephanie Meyer. I have been reading along with these books. I haven't been talking about them because I've been reading along for the Twilight in Quarantine podcast. So I read three chapters. Yeah. But then I get to the end of them. I'm like, Ugh, forget it. I'm just going to read the last six chapters or whatever. And then I decided because I had Eclipse already in my queue as well. I was like, oh, I'll just read that. And I got about halfway through Eclipse and realized, oh yeah, it's a quartet, not a trilogy. There's still another book to go. But that was as much as I could deal with. For those of you that don't know, these are part of the Twilight Saga. There are vampires, there are werewolves, there is teen romance. They are, they are interesting books. The reread is very interesting. Eclipse especially. I feel like Eclipse and New Moon really could have been one book. I'm not quite sure why there was two, but there really could have been one book, I think. Because they could sell two. Well, I mean, I know. It's like, why are there five of the movies? <laughs> Just right. So yeah, they are, they are definitely a romp. They are definitely young adult. There's a lot more angst than I remember. And I read them while I was in my 30s when I read them the first time. Right. So they annoyed me a lot more this time around. They're still amusing, <laughs> but the angst I have some troubles with. So anyway, if you have... If you have a young adult, they might enjoy it. So then I stayed in the young adult uh, lane, but this one was a little more serious and awesome. Uh, I read The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, which was amazing. I picked it up. It was the publisher, I think, was doing, they had a, three or four books that they were making available as ebooks in libraries, unlimited numbers, no waiting period. So I grabbed it then and I hadn't I hadn't read it before I hadn't seen the movie but heard good things and it was it was really great so this is the story of Star she is uh, 16 years old black girl lives in an inner city neighborhood but attends a fancy pants private school out in the suburbs so she has kind of two two ways of being she's there's the star when she's at her school and the star when she's at home in her neighborhood um, and they don't, those two worlds don't interact too much. So she's at a party in her neighborhood. 
runs into an old friend that she hasn't seen in a while. They get talking and they were best friends at one point when they were one point when they were kids. So they get talking. He offers to drive her home. The police stop them and end up killing her friend. So she's the only witness other than the police officer. And the book goes on from there and deals with all what happens in her neighborhood, the reaction of the kids at her school, how she's dealing with it. Like, what is she going to tell people? How is she going to stand up for herself and for her friend and all the ramifications of it? Obviously, I haven't been in this situation that feels very true based on other things I've read. Certainly the reaction of the white kids, I totally understand. Don't agree with a lot of them, but it, it all it all felt very true and, and well done as well. Do you think your boys would enjoy it? Um, or I don't know about enjoy it. Do you think it would resonate with them in a way that's meaningful? I think so. I mean, it, it's definitely a lot of it is just general teenage stuff and, you know, mm-hmm. power struggles between kids and, um, you know, but a lot of it is just how people are viewing her neighborhood and, and she sees it as just her neighborhood and there, there are gangs there, but there's also the corner store and, the barbershop and her neighbors that, you know, have been there for 40 years and people doing stuff with each other. And so it was a really, it was a beautiful portrait, I think, of a a family that we don't see a lot of, or at least, you know, things I've read, if it's in an urban environment, you don't see representations of joy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was really nice to see that as well. And, you know, they weren't perfect. Obviously, the parents were fighting and yelling at their kids and all sorts of things. But it was it was a really nice nice book in a lot of ways, and, and obviously very hard book. But again, felt like a true story, so I really like that. And I'm interested to see. I kind of want to watch the movie now. I watched the preview, and there was something that they changed during the murder, which seems pretty significant. So I want to see how the rest of that plays out. So that was the Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, and then I read The Deep by Rivers Solomon which is a novella, which is really interesting. So it, the, the book is based on a song that was written by David Diggs's rap group, and he played Jefferson in the original Hamilton. So this is his other thing that he does when he's not doing Broadway. And that song was based on another song. So it's this whole, and actually the David Diggs, song they won a hugo award which is the sci-fi awards for their performance so it's very interesting the story itself is about basically mermaids that live way under the ocean that are the descendants of pregnant enslaved women that were thrown overboard during the atlantic crossing so this is not a happy story and they it's, it's about their society and how they have survived and and one of them has an adventure and so it kind of focuses on that and the the song's focus on different parts of their culture so that they've all kind of played off of each other. So yeah, so it was just a really interesting book. Their whole way of thinking about life is different. A lot of it is about their history and how much they've lost and how they're holding on to it, but how much pain there is in it. So I really enjoyed this book. And it's, again, it's a novella. It's pretty short. I think the reading time on my Kindle one was only like two and a half hours. So, and then just exploring the songs and the whole mix of things was really cool. So I enjoyed that. And that was The Deep by Rivers Solomon. And then the final one is Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel. And she wrote Station Eleven. I can't wait to get my hands on this book. It was really good. And it was so interesting because this is actually her, it's at least her third book. She had a book before Station Eleven and Station Eleven and this one. Uh, I feel like people think of her as kind of a dystopian author because Station Eleven was post, <laughs> post-pandemic. It wiped out most of the people. But when you read all three of them, that's kind of not the most important part of that book. Um, So this one focuses mostly on Vincent, who is a young woman, or I think she ends up, finishes when she's in her 30s or 40s. And it opens with her falling. um, And you're not quite sure what's going on. And it goes back and looks at the rest of her life and how she got there. And there's other characters. And she was born and raised in an island off the tip of Vancouver Island in Canada, ends up moving away for a while, comes back, works at a hotel, meets the owner of the hotel and ends up marrying him. Turns out he's involved in a Ponzi scheme, goes on from there. So there's all these other characters. There's her brother, there's an artist, there's a shipping guy. The characters all weave through each other's lives. You get their different viewpoints 
and the whole thing kind of has this, I keep thinking of as an almost dreamlike quality, and I don't know if that's quite what I mean, but the writing is really beautiful. The story, it just, it's kind of, there's the choices you make and how it leads you in other ways and what, what makes you make these kind of choices. And another one that I really enjoyed and I yeah had a hard time putting that one down to make dinner and whatnot. So that was really good. And I just I, finished it last night. So Station Eleven is still one of my favorite books. Yeah. Have you read her first either? Well, you haven't read Glass Hotel. Did you read the first one? No, I haven't. The Quartet was really good as well. And it's, it's much more similar to this one. It's current time, people on the edge and the margins of society. And, and also not like, you know, people who are fabulously wealthy and live in New York penthouses and, but all this. Yes. And I think she had that in Station Eleven too. It was all these different characters whose lives kept intersecting and, and back and forth in time. So the structure is certainly very similar in all three books. But yeah. Excellent. Definitely recommend that one. How about you? I, based on your recommendation, read The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And I think what I really appreciated about the novel was how he used the different terminology for the different factions of society, like the tasked to talk about the enslaved people and the quality, all with capital letters. It's so creepy. But um, for the the white plantation owners. And then he had another term for the the men who helped run the plantations but didn't own property or and oh it was just a brutal depiction of all of those factions of society during this enslaved era. I loved that he was Hiram Walker was really struggling with his recollections of his mother who left him this incredible legacy. And he, he is in search of so many different things, and, but mostly that part of himself that he lost when he lost his mother. And her spirit really lives on in a meaningful way in the book. And that's where the mystical realism comes in, the magical realism, because he has inherited this gift of water dancing. And I don't want to give too much away because I think part of the joy of the book is experiencing that from his, from his experience. You know, it unfolds for him throughout the book, and I think it should for the reader too. The book is, is difficult because it, it takes place during an enslaved era, and the geography of it is on the border of a of Pennsylvania. Was it illegal to have slaves in Pennsylvania then? It was just a really difficult to be so close to that free place and know it was there and yet to work the plantation and geography basically kept you from being a free person. And that was just a really, it was really well depicted in that tension, I think, is ever present in the book. Monica talked about it a couple weeks ago or about a month ago. And I think there's a lot to unpack with it. I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a hard book, but really beautiful. And reminds me, and I think I said this at the time, it reminds me a lot of the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, where it's that difficult subject. And the magical realism doesn't make it lighter, but it makes it a way in. Yeah, that magical realism is where the, the joyful parts come in and like I said before, seeking that, the black joy where we can find it, like you pointed out with the, with the hate you give. I think, and also the, the loss of history, like he's really, he doesn't remember his mother, but all of the connections and a lot of the other characters have that loss of history, which is a big part of the deep that I also talked about. So yes, that's, that's yeah. a huge part of it as well. So there's a lot of really interesting things going on in that book. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I put down two whole books this week and said no thank you to them. One of them had a lot of violence towards women and I just couldn't deal with it. And I'm not even going to name them. So I lost, you know, like 200 pages of reading to two separate books. And then I picked up Mexican Gothic, which is new. Yeah, I've got that on my wait list. Sylvia Moreno Garcia. What 
a totally different read. This was really different. It takes place in the 1950s Mexico in a silver mining town, like a train rides away from Mexico City. Our main character is Noemi, and she lives in Mexico City with her father, and she's like 20 or 22, somewhere in there. Her family wants her to be looking for a husband. And her cousin, who is recently married, like within a year, and her cousin is orphaned. And so her father is in charge of, well, was in charge of her. She sends this disturbing letter to the father saying that it's really weird where she's at. She's hearing voices and it's, it didn't sound like her in the letter. And so they all assume that she's just really homesick. And so they send Noemi to go visit the, the cousin's name is Catalina in this place called High Place. So she goes, takes the train down to High Place and she gets there and it's the owners of this once prosperous silver mine. And the house is completely English. It's like Victorian, super Gothic, really creepy all the staff are just really weird and she can't, she's kind of a spirited 1950s Mexican woman and she cannot figure out what's going on. And there's one guy about her age who is part of the family, but also helps out around this house. And they're very cloistered. Like they don't really let outsiders in. They only let her in because she's Catalina's cousin and she just cannot figure out what's going on. And her cousin is really sick, maybe mentally sick. They don't know and she can't get any answers. Well, this house is so weirdly haunted and it just unfolds into this like mycologist, like weird mushrooms and, and the whole silver mine and what happened with that legacy. and. It is wild. It is so weird and so good. It just permeates everything. This basically sort of haunted house. And it is a delightful distraction from coronavirus. Yeah, I've heard good things about it. I'm excited to, to get well, to that at some point. Yeah, it's definitely a mystery and a ghost story and a soap opera, and it's got it all. <laughs> yes. So that is, that's it though, because I did turn down two books. So bingo. Bingo. Uh, we are in bingo season. We started May 22nd and it ends September 7th, day before my child goes back to school. The only rule we have is that you need to post a photo of your bingo with its completed row column diagonal either on Instagram with the hashtag CCRR, Summer Bingo 2020, or you can put it in uh, the Ravelry thread if you are able to get there. Yeah, we'd love to see what people are up to. And if you still need a copy of the bingo card itself, feel free to contact us. I haven't done too much. I guess I did the double batch. Uh, even though I made them on two separate days, I'm considering it a double batch <laughs> because it was the same recipe and I gave Yeah, for things. sure. And I, you know, I make the rules anyway, so whatever. <laughs> uh, I can count that. And um, I think that might be it. Oh, I did have a kitchen dance party just with myself. So that, that counts. Was we make the rules. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Great. I have three. I have finished the work in progress on that quilt that I've had for eight years. I, I mean, is it less time than the sweater? So. It is less time than the sweater. Thank you, you. Yeah. I read The Water Dancer, and that was your recommendation. Although I still think I should listen to the Crazy Rich Asians, because you really loved that, and that's been on my list, too, of your recommendations. Yep. Um, and then I, when dealt the blow of the long-term homeschooling mm -hmm. and was bottom of the barrel spirit wise, mm. I started my gratitude list. 
Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. And that I think is something that I'm going to add to. So, you know, just being really grateful for a husband with a sense of humor and, and getting regular mail from good pen pal friends and taking myself to the beach the other day. It was so foggy at my house and I just had to get out and I went down to the beach and it was this little pocket of sunshine at the beach. Yeah, what beach were you at? At the Vicente entrance. So crazy. Yeah, because I it know. was foggy at my house too and I'm closer to the beach than you are. You it was. I was like, ah, where did that sun come from? I, I was so surprised. Um, and I, could, I know I could tell when I was coming down slow, like, oh, it might be clear, you know, and I could see. And then when I got down there, I was just blown away at how blue the water was. And it was just, I was literally in a donut hole opening in the sky, not literally, but yeah. So I am just adding to my gratitudes as I, you know, big and small, because boy, is it a crazy time still. Yep. I guess I still have the same bingo from two weeks ago, like across that second row. I'm going for the full blackout. So there's that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I've got to work on, I've got to work on that list. I, I've done all sort of the easy things and now I've got to put a little more effort into my bingo. So I have to think about, about this, but I think the gratitude one would be a good exercise. So. Yeah. It felt good to start it. Yeah. And it's something I can chip away at too. So yeah, please go ahead and post your items that you have been up to with the hashtag or in the raft thread and we would love to see them. Other than that, I think we're about done. So make sure to do something you love every day. Thanks everyone. Bye. Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram as craftcookreadrepeat or courtneysf, that's C-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.